9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest special book episode of the podcast when we try to focus on books that we think you, our listeners, would find interesting. This one is, I think, right up your alley. It's called America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. It's by Ali Wynn, who's a senior analyst at Eurasia Group. He's a term member at the Council on Foreign Relations, a David Rockefeller fellow with the Trilateral Commission, a security fellow with the Truman National Security Project. And with all of that, it's it's kind of surprising you had time to write the book, Ali. You're very, very kind, David. It's, it's really a privilege to be with you. And I'm just really looking forward to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, congratulations on the book. It's clearly on an important topic. Wherever I've gone in the, in the past few years, people have talked about great power competition as the new central focus of U.S. foreign policy. You think there may be mistake lurking in that. Do you want to describe it? Sure. And, and so I, I hasten to note that, you know, both for our conversation and also in the book, I posit a distinction between thinking about great power competition descriptively and thinking about it prescriptively. So descriptively, I certainly have no objections to, uh, to the use of the term. And in fact, I think that really to the credit, to, to the credit of the intellectual architects of great power competition, the phrase or the construct or the term, it really does succinctly encapsulate a lot of core dynamics, a lot of core drivers of contemporary geopolitics. It doesn't necessarily capture the totality of contemporary geopolitics. I don't think that any one construct could, but it does distill some important trends. So number one, the United States, despite remaining the world's preeminent power, it relatively is not as influential as it was, say, at the end of the Cold War or even two decades ago or or a decade earlier. China and Russia, America's two principal nation state competitors, are undoubtedly more able and more willing to, to push back and challenge U.S. influence. So descriptively, great power competition distills some very important dynamics. What I try to argue in the book is that turning a description into a prescription is problematic. And so I'll I'll just outline what I think are three broad concerns that I have with advancing great power competition as a prescriptive framework. The first one is when you have a foreign policy that is not, maybe not exclusively, but is in large measure oriented around responding to your competitors, you in a way from the get-go are seeding the, the competitive turf to your competitors. You're allowing your competitors to dictate the terms of competition. So the United States is saying, what is China going to do next? What is Russia going to do next? And then how does America respond? So you already are placing yourself in a kind of reactive defensive position and you're ceding the terms of competition to your competitors. And I think it's very important for the United States, rather than projecting a reactive defensive foreign policy to project an affirmative and proactive foreign policy. So that's critique number one. The second critique, which I actually think is a source of, should be a source of confidence for the United States, not unbridled confidence, but a source of quiet confidence for the United States is, so great power competition rightly recognizes that in the sort of the heady post-Cold War period, the United States veered too far in the direction of complacence. It succumbed to triumphalism and it understated the potential for the likes of China and Russia to, uh, to reassert themselves and challenge U.S. influence. 
But I think that there's a risk now that the pendulum might be overcorrecting in the direction of consternation. We don't want to be complacent, but we don't want to succumb to alarmism. And I make I try to argue in the book that China and Russia, they are formidable competitors. They are multifaceted competitors. And I think that they are competitors that are likely to endure. The United States is going to have to find a way of coexisting with them. But if they're not two feet tall, I also don't think that they're 10 feet tall. And I think that right-sizing the competitive challenges that they pose is going to be very critical for America's competitive equipoise. So I'll just briefly run through what I think are some of China and Russia's respective competitive liabilities. When I was writing the book, I very often encountered this narrative that Russia, under the leadership of Vladimir Putin, Russia is stealthy, it's ubiquitous, it's behind every fraudulent election or contested election, it's behind every damaged U.S. alliance and partnership. There was really this narrative of kind of Putin pulling the strings. And I think that what we've seen with Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a really extraordinary act of strategic self-sabotage. What has Putin accomplished? Sure, he's reminded the world that Russia matters. He's reminded the world that Russia can, can wreak a lot of havoc. But what has he done in the process? Russia is now even more beholden to China than it was prior to the invasion of Ukraine. NATO has a new lease on life, and it's poised to admit two new members. The European Union has granted membership candidate status to two countries. Russia has cut itself off from vital inputs of capital and technology that it will require for its long-term economic development. So Russia has really shot itself in the foot. China, on the other hand, it's not as blundering. I don't think that it's as risk-tolerant or risk-embracing as Russia, but it too has, I think, belied this narrative of its much vaunted strategic acumen. If you look at China's diplomatic stature today versus where it was prior to the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, China today, with the exception of its relationship with Russia, and I think that even that, that relationship is becoming something of a reputational albatross around China's neck, virtually all of China's major power relationships have deteriorated. You look at its relationship with the United States. You look at its relationship with the European Union. Look at the Quad. The Quad has a new lease on life. So I think that Russia and China, we, we don't want to discount their competitive potential, but we don't want to aggrandize that competitive potential either, because it could feed into that anxiety that I talked about with the first critique. The third and final critique, and then I'll stop. And this critique, I, I should say, and again, I hasten to note, it's an uncomfortable critique to articulate. It's an unpalatable critique to articulate. And I found it personally difficult to write. So I, when I submitted the manuscript, I submitted the initial version of the manuscript shortly before Russia invaded Ukraine. Then when Russia invaded Ukraine, I went to my editor and I asked her if she would allow me to write an afterward to offer at least some initial reflections on Russia's invasion. When you see the barbarity that Russia is inflicting upon Ukraine, when you see the really destabilizing, provocative, coercive measures that China is taking vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, you want to, I want to envision a scenario in which the United States can advance its vital national interests solely in alignment with like-minded countries. And I try to imagine a scenario in which could the United States bypass China and Russia, kind of place them in a geopolitical closet, take away the key and advance its vital national interests on the full panoply of transnational challenges solely in alignment with like-minded countries. And I wasn't able to construct a scenario. So I think that even if we hold our nose, even if we are loath to cooperate with them, and even if cooperative possibilities right now seem next to non-existent, if we accept the hypothesis that China and Russia are likely to endure in one form or another, and that they are major players in geopolitics, we are going to have to find some way of salvaging a diplomatic space. Uh, and diplomacy, I, I consider it a value agnostic term. You engage in diplomacy not because you want to, not because you harbor any illusions, but because you have to. That's a great summary, very eloquently put. You know, I generally agree with your thesis, particularly about the, the trap of thinking that a description is a prescription. I think the reason the term great power competition came into use 
and as you know, it came into use sort of particularly actively at the beginning of the Trump years, was because people were trying to turn the page from the global war on terrorism. And, you know, I think they were trying to say, hey, you know, there, there are other issues that are more important historically in the history of foreign policy. It is major powers or great powers, the condominiums between them, the rivalries between them that define geopolitics. And we need to focus on that again, instead of focusing on these relatively small, relatively narrow threats that exist among extremist groups. So to me, you know, that turning the page was a healthy kind of a thing. The the question then becomes, do you actually develop a coherent foreign policy around that? It is my sense, and I have been criticized for being too supportive of the Biden administration, but it it is my sense that they actually have rather thoughtfully looked at the future and said, we need to tackle these next generation issues by reimagining the world, reimagining our alliances, reimagining the global architecture, to refer to the Dean Acheson book, you know, have a sort of present at the creation 2.0 moment. And I had a conversation two, three weeks ago with Jake Sullivan that I that I turned into a, an interview that I did, and in which Jake sort of articulated the approach as, and again, he sort of borrowed a phrase from Dean Acheson, which was situations of strength, you know, he said, our goal is to look at each region of the world and do what we can to increase our relative leverage. Now, that's not the same thing, it seems to me exactly, as being sucked into or driven by a competition with the Chinese. And I might add, it's primarily with China Russia is a nuclear superpower, but it's an economic middleweight, and it's kind of China's wingman, perhaps, in, in all of this. But what do, you, what do you think of that? What do you think of the approach that, you know, it's not reactive, it's not all about, it's, it's saying here in the Middle East, here in Africa, here in Latin America, here in the Indo-Pacific region, Let's identify our options. Let's try to strengthen our position so that relative, when competition does occur, we're relatively better off. Does that sound to you like the right kind of response to the situation that the book describes? Absolutely. And I think when the Biden administration, I mean, if you look at, so I'll break up some of its achievements at home and abroad, but I think in totality, I think that the Biden administration, and really not even not even fully two years in, I think has really challenged this narrative of terminal American decline. I feel like it's almost sort of inbuilt into America's psyche. We, we go through these bouts of declinism, maybe like once every, you know, once every decade or so. I feel like it's almost endemic to the American psyche. The Biden administration, I think, with its achievements at home and abroad, has really pushed back on this narrative of American decline and the narrative that China is inexorably resurgent. So if you look at some of it, I'll talk about some of its accomplishments at home and then some of its achievements abroad. So just look at some of its legislative victories, and I, there have been many, but I would point to three of them that I think really demonstrate democracy can deliver, that competitive anxiety can be harnessed in the service of internal renewal. So last November, a uh, major, you know, one, I believe a $1.2 trillion uh, infrastructure act, that was last November. More recently, the Chips and Science Act, $280 billion, committing $52 billion to 
semiconductor manufacturing here at home. And then the Inflation Reduction Act commits $369 billion to clean energy initiatives, decarbonization initiatives. It's the single largest investment of that kind by the U.S. federal government. And those are just three of the achievements at home. But they demonstrate, again, that democracy can deliver, but that bipartisan progress, hard to believe, is still possible. And that, again, competitive anxiety can be one tool in a broad toolkit for internal renewal. So those are some of the achievements, some of the achievements at home. And then abroad, I think it's difficult to overstate the amount of repair work that the administration had to do when it took office and the amount of repair work that remains yet to be done in terms of reinvigorating core alliances and partnerships in Europe and Asia, in terms of recommitting the United States to multilateral institutions and agreements. But again, even though you know, President Biden and, and Vice President Harris will often say that when they engage their counterparts and say America is back, their counterparts will say, we agree that you're back, but for how long? That's actually, I think, that the big uncer- that's the big uncertainty that looms. But abroad, look at the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, major, major economic undertaking, which importantly includes not only members of the Quad, it also includes a number of member countries of ASEAN. So you look at the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, you look at the growing prominence of the Quad, you look at the new vigor of the transatlantic project, which a lot of people, I think, believe was moribund. So when you combine those achievements domestically and internationally, I think that the Biden administration has pushed back on this narrative that the United States is in terminal decline. And I think it's really surprised uh, China and Russia. I think that China and Russia and China and Russia, they may yet believe that the United States is in terminal decline, but I think that they've probably been taken, taken by surprise by, by the administration's achievements. And I think that a critical, a really sort of a foundational element, I think, of the administration's approach is that domestic renewal, and I think that we really see, we saw a preview of this very early on with the interim national security strategic guidance that was issued early on in the Biden administration. And the administration doesn't portray domestic renewal and external competitiveness as it doesn't bifurcate them. It doesn't portray them as being in, sil- in silos. It says that they are inextricably intertwined. The United States cannot compete sustainably with China, cannot compete sustainably with Russia if its internal foundations of strength are depleted. And so I think that a critical element of the Biden administration's approach has been ensuring that even as you attend to crises abroad and even as you renew your competitive strengths abroad, you have to ensure that the foundations of your strength at home are being actively replenished. You, know, you mentioned your recent conversation with, with Jake Sullivan. I've always been struck by a comment that he made at the Anchorage Summit. And it, it's a comment that I, I, I quote in, in the book. It's a comment that I, I revisit quite often. And it's a comment that I, I commend to, to others whenever I speak with them. So, so Jake Sullivan and, and Secretary Blinken, you know, their counterparts are berating them and, and talking about America's alleged sins and alleged misdeeds. And, and Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor Sullivan, they listened very patiently. And I'll always remember Jake's comment. You know, very quietly, wasn't frazzled. He said, look, we don't run away from criticism, whether that criticism originates from abroad, whether that criticism originates from within. We don't run away from criticism. But he said that in democracies, democracies, they air their dirty laundry. They have a vigorous debate about their dirty laundry. And democracies are confident because they use that reckoning as a tool for internal renewal. That's what sort of the secret sauce of democracies is. And I think that what we are seeing is that not only can we push back and are pushing back against this narrative of terminal American decline, but we are reinventing ourselves at home. We are reinventing ourselves at abroad. And I think that the secret sauce, for lack of a, for lack of a more eloquent phrase, the secret sauce of the United States is it has this intangible but really compelling story, tradition, and quality of being able to regenerate itself, to reinvent itself, to meet new crises at home and abroad. And I think that 
not even two years into the administration, we're seeing abundant evidence of that proposition. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that kind of constitutional DNA, which promotes renewal, is in fact the secret advantage of the United States, not so secret. I also think that, you know, as we look back on first year and a half plus of the Biden administration, their ability to turn things around in terms of the relative position of the United States and to formulate a next generation foreign policy that addresses these things is really nothing short of astonishing. And I'm not being a cheerleader here. You just, whether you take the Paris Accord, do you take re-engaging on the Iran nuclear deal, which wherever that may go, or you take AUKUS, or you take the Quad, or you take amazing revitalization of NATO and the United States role in it, or you take the domestic things that we're talking about, and they just got back from the Middle East and they're beginning to rethink how that works. And they're having a summit with Africa at the end of this year and beginning to fit that into the formulation. And vice president in particular has been very engaged in Latin America. The president participated with the we just had a bilateral with the Mexican president and so forth. And so a lot has happened very quickly. At the same time, by the way, I can just imagine you're writing this book and Russia is doing everything to destroy itself and, and is diminishing rapidly. So this issue of relative decline of the United States, I think, is itself relative. I don't think we, I would say we haven't declined relative to Russia. And we don't know with China because they haven't addressed a lot of their internal political and economic issues. So that could go that that could go either either way. Absolutely. Uh, but you touched upon what I see as the sixty four thousand dollar question here, and the sixty four thousand dollar question is, what happens in two years? Do we have a country that has a group of people that understand where we're going to go, but we no longer have a bipartisan consensus on America's role in the world? And that may be our undoing. What do you feel about that? David, your question, it, if you'll indulge me just a little bit by way of a personal digression. When I began writing the book in earnest, so I began writing the book in earnest about three years ago, so in, in, late, in late 2019. And as you, as you can see when you read the book, most of the book is devoted to external challenges. So thinking about trying to right-size the competitive challenges from China and Russia, respectively, trying to right-size the, challenge, the competitive challenge posed by their, their deepening entente. So when I began writing the book in earnest, I was much more focused on, on those external competitive challenges. As the book progressed, and as I, as I drew closer to, to submitting the initial manuscript, I was relatively, and again, I want to emphasize relatively because it, I don't want to sound sanguine or insouciant in the face of what China and Russia are doing, but I relatively became more convinced that the United States could manage the competitive challenges from China and Russia. It could maintain its competitive equipoise. But I became progressively more and more concerned about America's internal politics. And it seems like a shopworn point to talk about America's political dysfunction and America's lack of internal cohesion. And yet, even if those points feel shopworn, they're no less compelling and they're no less concerning. And, and I, I'll go one step further if I could be so bold. If the United States is not able to forge a renewed sense of national purpose, if at home, if the United States is not able to forge a renewed sense, of national cohesion, in which Americans of varying ideological persuasions are once again able to regard one another as fellow travelers rather than as mortal adversaries, questions of external competition become moot. 
And that's really, for me, is a big takeaway. I do believe that the United States, if it can reinvent itself at home, if it can restore that sense of national cohesion, I'm very confident in America's ability to manage a resurgent China, very confident in its ability to manage an irredentist Russia. But I am very worried about the challenges we see internally. And when I, and I realize that sort of Twitter, as they say, Twitter America is not representative of, of all of America, but, but you do get a sense of some of just the, the viciousness of political polarization. When you see Americans who are turning against one another with such viciousness, who really regard one another as interlopers in many cases or as enemies. How do you restore that sense of cohesion? And if I were sitting, you know, if I were advising Xi Jinping or if I were advising Vladimir Putin, you know, my advice would be let Americans go after themselves, occasionally kindle the fire. And, and Richard Stengel has talked about and, and Fiona Hill have talked about how, given the extent of disinformation within the American body politic and given the given the the range and the intensity of ideological fissures between Americans, uh, you know, Fiona Hill and Rick Stengel have said that all you know, the Russians and Chinese really have to do is occasionally pour a little bit of fuel on the fire, occasionally interfere, you know, kindle with those divisions, but they can essentially sit back and allow this internecine ideological warfare to play out. So, so David, your, your question points to my greatest concern, and it's not clear to me that we have a compelling answer. I'll make one, one additional point, which is that I said a few minutes earlier that competitive anxiety, it can be an important source of, of internal renewal. But I don't think that external competition, just given the, the acrimony that we see at home, I don't think the competitive or external competition, I don't think that it can fully mollify the political polarization that we see. I don't think that it can furnish that renewed sense of national cohesion. I, I think it can be one lever of bringing about that renewed sense of purpose, but it won't suffice. So I would be remiss to say that I have a good answer to, to your question. I don't. I do think that it is the foundational question. And a lot of America's, it's not just America's competitors that are engaged in a certain schadenfreude when they examine the state of America's political dysfunction. Many of America's well-wishers, many of America's core allies and partners ask are asking the same question that you've asked, which is, what happens in November 2024? Who takes office in November 2025, and given the vagaries and the really the wild oscillations that we've seen in America's domestic politics, I think that a lot of America's allies and partners rightly, rightly say to themselves, we're very heartened by what the administration has accomplished in under two years. We're very excited to see what it will accomplish in its two plus remaining years. But what happens if the next administration comes and via legislation or executive orders or other actions essentially nullifies all of that progress? And so I think that a lot of allies and partners are saying to themselves, let's lock in whatever progress we can, but we can't take for granted that that progress won't be reversed. And, and I don't think, despite their best efforts, I don't think that any official in the administration can confidently say to allies and partners that that potential doesn't exist. And that's a very, very damaging prospect for U.S. foreign policy. No, but it can. And the reality is that going back to, I, don't, I, I think it's unlikely we would get to a foreign policy quite as bad as Trump's because he was particularly inept and unschooled, but more of the kind of gated community, you know, America first policy in which our international priorities become more cartoonish, good guys, bad guys, axis of evil and stuff. That's dangerous. We only have time for really one more question here, but I, but I do want to, um, you know, go to one of the points that you bring up that I think is an extremely important point that I think is central the approach of the administration and has been underappreciated for, I don't know, you know, 20 or 30 years in Washington, maybe. 
And that is the role of diplomacy. That is that no relationship is simple. I think the administration kind of started out with a Biden campaign line that trapped them a little bit, which is, you know, the world is divided into sort of two camps, autocracies versus democracies. And they realized when Ukraine came that they needed to work with some countries that were in a gray zone and they had to find a way to do that. But the only way to do that, it's not rivalry, it's not war, it's diplomacy. It's finding the things you can agree on and working on them and trying to work through the other problems in a way that is as minimally destructive as possible. Do you see it that way? Oh, absolutely. And I've actually, I've been rereading just on, on the art of diplomacy. I've been rereading, of course, Bill Burns's book, The Back Channel, and, and I've been reading, uh, rereading books by Derek Cholet. And what they both emphasize, and I think that this is sort of an undercurrent, not an undercurrent, I think it's, it really is it's sort of central to the, the administration's diplomatic approach. I think that when you're dealing with such complex challenges, whether it's China or Russia, when you're dealing with this concatenation of crises, you're dealing with this grinding war of attrition in Ukraine, you're dealing with this uptick in cross-trade tensions, you're dealing with the potential that if the JCPOA isn't resuscitated, there could be some kind of new conflagration in the Middle East. And of course, we're still reeling from the scar tissue of COVID-19. So when you're dealing with this concatenation of crises, when you're dealing with complexity and fluidity in geopolitics, you're not always going to achieve sort of ticker tape victories, dramatic victories to make the headlines. Very often, the work that you have to do and the work that really is going to advance U.S. national interests, it's quiet, it's incremental, it's patient, but that doesn't make it any less important. It's critical work. Um, and if you look at you know, again, if you look at Bill Burns's, you know, the back channel, if you look at Derek Chollet's books and, and their, their writings and their interviews, they emphasize that, and it's particularly damaging sort of in this era of social media. I think that in, in the era of social media is not, <laughs> to understate the case, it's not conducive to the articulation and the advocacy and promulgation of this kind of quiet, incremental patient diplomacy. It's looking for the big headlines. It's looking for the, the buzzy catchphrase kind of headlines, but diplomacy is hard. Diplomacy is patient. Diplomacy is incremental. Our, our you know, U.S. ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns, he makes the same point. So I think that a lot of there's a lot of repair work that has to be done. There's a lot of intense diplomacy that has to be done to assure that we avoid the ultimate catastrophe, namely great power war. And it might not make the front pages. Sometimes that diplomacy has to be done quietly, clandestinely. But I would much rather I would much rather that we not look for sort of the quick wins, which in many cases are going to be elusive or not elusive, but illusory and really focus on. Each day, are we patiently, slowly, quietly moving the needle forward to advance U.S. national interest? That's what diplomacy is. That's there's sort of a cartoon, a kind of a cartoonish caricature version of diplomacy in which we achieve great decisive victories and we move from one decisive victory to the next. And I don't think that that's the way the world works. So I think that if you look at the administration's approach, it's a recognition that even if the diplomacy is not making the front page, it still is critically important. It's advancing. U.S. national interests, and it will continue the repair work that, that is being done right now and that must continue to be done going forward. Totally agree with you. Super sound analysis. For those of you who are listeners, who've been listeners for a long time, we don't do these book things frequently. We do them when we think there's a book you really ought to read. This book, America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition, is important for its content. It's also important because I think Ali is a rising voice and is uh, uh, somebody that you should watch and, and, and get to know. 
Thank you for joining us. Hopefully you'll come back again. One of our other shows, we'll talk about breaking events and, and, and so on. But in the meantime, congratulations on the book. It's an important message. And uh, I hope, you know, many of our listeners will go out there and buy it. And uh, thank you for joining us. David, uh, what an honor and a privilege to, to speak with you. Thank you so much for giving me the chance and hope to uh, continue the conversation soon. We will do that. And to everybody else, we'll be back again tomorrow with uh, another podcast dealing with some other form of, uh, I think, domestic policy mayhem tomorrow. But uh, that is as it has been recently. And we look forward to joining you then. In the meantime, to everybody, stay healthy. Bye-bye.